Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. The role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. The level of economic integration that Mexico, the United States, and Canada have managed to achieve with one another is surely one of the defining success stories of the Western Hemisphere. Indeed, from the successful negotiation of USMCA to the first-ever North American Semiconductor Conference and recent U.S.-Mexico high-level economic dialogue, there is much reason for optimism about North America's future. Undoubtedly, however, more needs to be done to realize the full economic potential of North America as a bloc, especially as politically charged disputes over key issues from energy to automotives and agriculture risk undermining support within all three countries at a time when it is most sorely needed. With both the United States and Mexico conducting presidential elections next year, there is a unique opportunity to tackle these challenges with renewed energy and focus. Doing so will not be easy and will require a willingness to look past inflammatory campaign rhetoric to delve into the intricate ways in which the economies of the United States, Mexico, and Canada interact and sometimes clash with one another. To help us parse these complexities, we are honored to be joined today by Orlando Perez, Senior Counsel at TMI Abogados and Principal Negotiator of the USMCA's Intellectual Property Chapter. In this episode, we will discuss the state of play with North American trade, some of the outstanding challenges to full compliance with USMCA, as well as some proposals calling for the agreement to be expanded beyond North America. Thank you so much for joining us today, Orlando. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I really appreciate the invitation by the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, to participate in this podcast. Thank you so much. Orlando, you've been involved in international trade talks for over 20 years, not just USMCA, but a raft of other projects. How would you evaluate the implementation of USMCA in the three years since it entered into force? What are some of the main areas of success and are there any unexpected challenges you would call attention to? Well, Ryan, thank you so much for these questions. And I think that now that we have three years from the implementation or from the entry into force of the agreement, we have some perspective or idea on what is happening in the trade relationship in North America. International trade between the three countries are pretty relevant. In terms of the numbers, you will see that Mexico has ranked a second trading partner from the U.S. after Canada. Um, the total trade with Mexico with respect to the U.S. amounted $7 billion in 2022. Canada has been record trade of about $793 billion. And China is the third trading partner of the U.S. So what you will see is that obviously the three members, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S., are the main trading partners among each other. And together... The tree represents more than 50% of the world total trade. What does this mean is that it's not only because perhaps of the USMCA, you remember that this trade relationship between the three countries starts with the NAFTA. The NAFTA was considered a bad label in the US, but despite of that fact, it has been a vital tool, this agreement, this trade agreement, to create these synergies between the three countries and to have this deep integration in trade. And if you see, for example, the investment figures, reviewing the figures of Mexico in 2022, the US and Canada has been the first and the second source of foreign direct investment. 
At least in 2022, Mexico registered $35 billion. And the major component of this figure came from the U.S. and Canada. Obviously, as you mentioned, there are some unexpected challenges, but other challenges has been in the recent years. No? One is perhaps these national policies or protectionist policies implemented across the three countries. The three countries um, engage in a negotiation of a new agreement with some type of differences from the previous NAFTA, introduces some internal policies in the trade agenda. And this, I will say, these nationalist and protectionist policies perhaps shape a little bit the way that we may trade in the current days. Sometimes creates a lot of uncertainty for the business sector. And this is the unexpected challenges that we will be facing in the following years. I guess that there is a thin line between implementing these national policies and also uh, to pursue the right to regulate domestic policies, but maintain the objective of the treaty that is to create open region for trade and investment. Well, USMCA represented a step forward, trade disputes in sensitive sectors like energy, agriculture, and automotives have captured much of the media attention. A key challenge for any trade agreement is compliance with the results of a dispute settlement outcome. How has compliance been so far with the findings of USMCA's various dispute settlements, and what obstacles are keeping participant countries from reaching full compliance? I think that you have touched a very relevant point, and is the issue of the compliance. And what we need to be very careful is to maintain the credibility of the agreement. Every time that three states or any states engage in a negotiation for a trade agreement, obviously there is a perception that it will create certainty and predictability on the rules that economic operators will follow or will be subject to. The compliance of the trade agreement was one of the major reasons also to review the previous NAFTA and to reshape some of the provisions. It's very true that many times when you have a very integrated trade, trade disputes will arise. Every trade dispute implies some uh, political or sensitive issues. But the way that I have always seen this relationship that sometimes is a tension relationship is that you have institutional framework to deal with this type of disputes. Obviously, every party will be in a position to say that their interpretation of the treaty is the correct one. They will be able to provide all the evidence, all the arguments to a body of persons that are neutral to the parties that will make an objective assessment of the issues and will try to give guidance to the complaining party, uh, to the responding party on how the treaty should be interpreted and applied in a particular case. So I really believe that compliance is um, vital to the agreement and also to follow the mechanisms of dispute settlement says. So if we have panel report, it doesn't matter whether it's against the U.S., against Canada, or against Mexico. I think that this will provide guidance to the countries or to the trading partners to implement the agreement as was expected. No, Obviously, I guess this creates a lot of attention, not only from the media, but uh, particularly from economic actors, investors, entrepreneurs, to see that the three countries are complying with the spirit of the agreement. On the issue of energy specifically, after over a year of formal consultations, the United States has signaled its readiness to escalate to the panel phase. 
Should a panel find against AMLO's energy policies, which close much of the domestic market and prioritize state-owned providers, such as the CFE, why has it taken so long for this to reach this level? When might we expect a decision on this issue? To be very honest, Ryan, I think that for me it's difficult to know. Obviously, I don't have a magic ball to predict any result, and I don't have any magic ball to see when the U.S. will move forward this particular dispute. And I heard Catherine Tai, the representative of the United States Trade Representative, that basically mentioned something that is really true in any dispute, that the complaining party is the driver of the vehicle. So the complaining party is able to move the process forward. The responding party has an interest to provide perhaps information to continue the discussion, but they don't trigger the process in the future. So the decision to move the process obviously is in the complaining parties. It's difficult to know what will be the end of the story, but I will say some of my remarks in the previous questions. Now, both sides, the complaining party, the responding party, will be able to provide all the evidence, all the arguments that they believe give the reasons of their position that they have taken for whatever reasons, but a neutral body of persons will make an objective assessment of the facts, of the evidence, and will take a review and make a finding in terms of what is the objective and purpose of the agreement. And I think that this is the key relevant part because you will have an opinion of neutral body of panelists that will provide some guidance to both countries. We really don't know what will be the final resolution of a panel. And sometimes in, the, in trade disputes, you, you believe that you have uh, your own idea, but you never know until you have the result or the report of the panel. And sometimes you see some surprises there. So I think that we should continue expect it. And I assume that the US and Canada as a complaining party will take the decision at the time that they consider appropriate to move the case forward, or in the alternative, we'll continue the discussions on a bilateral basis with Mexico. It should be noted that the United States is not exempt from compliance issues either, and has yet to fully comply with the decision of a previous panel that found against U.S. automotive rules of origin. What is keeping the U.S. from full compliance? Is there a risk of setting a poor precedent for other USMCA members who find themselves on the losing end of a ruling? I guess that this is also a tough question. My impression on on this particular case, as was mentioned previously, is that sometimes trade disputes, particularly state-to-state disputes, involves a very high level political issues that the government needs to resolve perhaps sometimes internally. But the treaty provides some um, mechanisms and some other guidance to fulfill the findings of any uh, particular report. I really believe for the three countries is for the best interest to comply with the, this type of decisions, because this will reflect the commitments that they have in the agreement. And they don't want to be in a situation where a country or a trading partner does not fulfill any decision in one moment. And some years later, they are facing the same situation, but in the opposite position. No? Complaining party, they will see that the other party has not implement the recommendations of a panel report uh, because in the past other cases has not been implemented. So for the interest of the certainty, security, predictability of the agreement, I think that is the best interest of the three trading partners to fully comply. In the case of the automotive sector, obviously there is an internal tension in the U.S., but the U.S. needs to take care 
of that domestic policies and to comply of what the panel has found in that particular dispute. One idea that seems to be gaining traction has been expanding USMCA beyond its original North American focus to incorporate like-minded countries throughout the Western Hemisphere. In particular, Costa Rica's president, Rodrigo Chavez, has been most vocal about this possibility, openly calling to exchange CAFTA-DR for USMCA. In your view, how likely is it that such a proposal would come to fruition? Well, I think that one of the difference of uh, the USMCA vis-a-vis the NAFTA or other free trade agreements is that uh, this agreement does not have a provision of accession. And I think that this was a decision that was taken care of by the three USMCA parties for a particular reason. Obviously, if you see the Vienna Convention of the Law of the Treaties, there is a possibility to have an accession by any other state. Article 15 of the Vienna Convention provides the, the accession or the consent to be bound by a treaty expressed by an accession. But in terms of the, of the USMCA, this provision was removed from the final text. Obviously, it was uh, this idea to have an agreement that integrates North America. And these provisions can obviously can be replicated with other countries. But I think that it will imply a lot of internal discussions between the three USMCA parties and also as a collective group or, or as a regional group to try to deal on what are the trade policies that they want to follow with the Western Hemisphere or with Latin America. I think that it's pretty unique that many other countries in the region of Latin America will request the accession to the USMCA or to participate in this type of process. But obviously, there there should be full assessment on whether it's possible to, to join to the agreement, the, the USMCA agreement, or to replicate these provisions with other countries in the region. Perhaps it will have some benefits for Mexico. For example, Mexico has some provisions that they don't have any other country around the globe that will put Mexico in the same level of competition with other countries. For example, Mexico has this rapid response mechanism uh, on labor, but no other countries is subject to this type of mechanism in with respect to the trade with the US. No. So this provides some perhaps some ideas of the benefits to expand this type of provisions. But we need to be careful on if it will be the USMCA or other type of agreements that provides the same type of provisions. As the newest trade agreement in the Western Hemisphere, are there any lessons that can be applied from USMCA to other trade frameworks? In particular, the APEP, the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, which has thus far felt lacking to an extent in substantive commitments. Well, I have always saw that this idea to have forum of economic cooperation, obviously, it's not new and it's always relevant to shape trade policies, economic policies of like-minded countries. I understand that this initiative does not imply to create a free trade agreement or to have a, a free trade provisions in terms of um, elimination of tariffs or elimination of restrictions in trading services or to have a regime for open investment and uh, mechanisms to resolve disputes on investment. But many of these uh, economic forums are sometimes are pretty relevant to maintain the momentum in the relationship of the countries and to review that the countries have a coordinated efforts in some obstacles that sometimes they share as some 
as a region. I really believe that these type of mechanisms sometimes create some uh, room for greater collaboration between agencies, with industries, with uh, economic actors, and also strengthen the ties between the countries in terms of the political relationship. No, So we don't know what will happen with this APEP negotiation. I, I, I don't know if it's I mentioned correctly, but I understand that this process will imply um, discussions with Chile, with Colombia, with Costa Rica, with Dominican Republic, with Mexico, Panama, Peru, but more in, in terms of economic cooperation. And we will see what, what happens in the future. At least in North America, we have some initiatives also to create more economic cooperation internally between governments, agencies, stakeholders, and industries. Let's zoom out a little to look at the North American economic relationship as a whole. Despite high degree of economic integration, the regulatory frameworks for all three countries have thus far remained somewhat out of sync. How can the United States, Mexico, and Canada improve cooperation on rules and regulations for products? I think that there are two issues. One is that three countries needs to reiterate their commitment to the USMCA and to really think about the objective and the purpose of the agreement and comply with the provisions, because this will maintain the credibility of the agreement. And at the same time, as you mentioned, we need to sync the economic policies between the three countries, the regulatory framework between the three countries. I also believe that the other initiatives that uh, has been created in North America sometimes help and assist the three countries in synchronize their priorities. So we have the North American um, Leader Summit. We have also the high-level economic dialogue between Mexico and the U.S. and the high-level economic dialogue with Canada. There is a lot of committees, working groups in the USMCA. There is the Free Trade Commission of the USMCA that meets regularly every year to follow up on what is happening in the agreement. We will have a mechanism on the review of the treaty every six years. There is some dialogues between the U.S. and Mexico, the CO dialogues, and also some initiatives of um, maintain the dialogue between entrepreneurs and private sector of Canada and Mexico. And I assume that uh, is the same case between the U.S. and Canada. So I think that all these initiatives assist the three countries to synchronize their policies and their priorities and to make the bloc more integrated in terms of their economic policies. Obviously, every single country or every single trading partner will have their own priorities. And we will see every time that we have elections in each of the three trading partners of the USMCA. But it's pretty relevant to have some coordination uh, in terms of our position as a region in front of other regions of the world. Lando, you mentioned that the USMCA is set to expire after 16 years unless all parties come together to extend the agreement. One opportunity to do so is at the 2026 Joint Review, where the U.S. Congress will have the opportunity to consider the successes of the agreement and provide recommendations for action. What can we do to ensure a smooth extension of USMCA again? when it comes before Congress in 2026? Well, yes, that's true. Um, this uh, provision of Article 34.7 of the USMCA that also provides very uh, singular and unique provision of how the treaty will be reviewed, 
provides that the treaty will expire in 16 years unless many issues happen, no? that particularly start with the review every six years. Every single USMCA party needs to make a joint review collectively, and they will need to express and confirm the desire to extend this agreement. Obviously, this implies an exercise every six years to review what is happening what the policies has been implemented between the three countries and how they have faced obstacles during that time and whether they need to make some just adjustments or or modifications. Obviously for Mexico and perhaps for Canada, it's difficult to have uh, every single six years a window to renegotiate the agreement because it will create a little bit of tension, conflicts, and sometimes uncertainty. But the three countries need to do their work that it's basically comply with the purpose, the objective, and the provisions of the agreement, comply with every single decision that they take collectively, and also the decisions or findings that came from the dispute settlement mechanisms. And this will create some environment for certainty for the three countries. And we don't know what uh, will be the assessment of the review that we will face in 2026. But obviously, uh, there are some tools uh, in the agreement to tackle those obstacles that they are facing. And the idea behind this uh, provision is to maintain the agreement, I will say, updated, but at the same time, credible for uh, economic uh, operators. I also think that sometimes, I will say, the perfect is the enemy of the good. No, So at the time that the negotiation was made, this agreement was in some way very new in terms of their provisions. The parties, they don't know what will be the implementation looks like in the future or how the mechanisms will work, for example, I would say perhaps a rapid response mechanism or other provisions. So they have the ability to review what is happening and make the adjustment, but this adjustment should not be a pretext or a window to renegotiate the balance that the three countries arrive at that time. Because I really believe that if you change the rules every six years, you will create more uncertainty rather to have predictability or security in in the business of the three countries. No? Orlando, is there something that we did not cover in this podcast? Is there anything else that you would like to highlight or add? I don't think so. I think that we cover many issues and very relevant issues. And obviously, as a person that has followed uh, the trade uh, relationship of Mexico with its trading partners, I was involved in the past as a government official in these areas. And now in my classroom or in my private practice, obviously, many of us has uh, an eye a follow of what is happening. And, and trade always has some surprises. There is something always new to follow and to see what is happening. And trade is uh, part of this is shaping every time. But I think that taking this, the history of this agreement, I don't see any real uh, or potential benefit to not to have this tool, as I will say, uh, as a vertebral column. I don't know if it's correct, this vertebral column for the integration of the region. Orlando Perez, Senior Counsel at TMI Abogados and the Principal Negotiator of the USMCA's Intellectual Property Chapter. Thanks for joining us on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you so much. See you soon. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.